So turn to Exodus chapter 3. Uh, we're in this series that I've entitled Moving Forward with God, and this is not just a series title. It's actually our theme for 2024, that we believe God is using us to move the gospel forward, to move our neighbors forward, to move hurting people forward, to move our family uh, as a local church forward, and to move individual families forward. And so we'll see that throughout our time together in this book of the Bible. Uh, This morning, I'm preaching a message I've entitled, Come, I Will Send You. How appropriate for having them here today. Come, I Will Send You. And you'll see I lifted that right from the text. Well, these uh, chapter two and into chapter three, this handful of verses is really a lot of time that has been compressed into these verses. Two weeks ago, we saw the birth of Moses as Moses was born and he was rescued from the uh, slaughter of the innocents under Pharaoh through his uh, mom's wisdom, putting him in a pitched uh, basket to save him in the Nile River and the cleverness of his older sister Miriam. And then last week we saw it fast forwarded from his birth to now he's 40 years old and he tries to take matters into his own hands, tries to be the strong macho deliverer of his people, one who was raised in Pharaoh's household. And now as we come to the beginning of chapter three, we fast forward another 40 years. So 80 years compressed in just a few verses. And I would venture a guess that uh, though he's 80 years old, if you think about If you're not 80 yet, I know we've got a few octogenarians in the room, but if you're not 80 yet, you're probably thinking, okay, if God gives me the grace to live to 80 years old, that's when I'm going to slow down. That's when I'm really going to take it easy. That's when I'm going to let these young bucks come and come along and, and take the reins and start serving and doing. And Moses may have thought that too. But it's interesting is that 80 years old is when God called Moses to do his greatest work. And you can look throughout redemptive history. Over and over again, God chooses to use the most unlikely people. God chooses to use ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Why? Because he gets all the glory. And and Moses' ministry here is certainly no different. Now, before we read our focal passage for today at the beginning of chapter 3, I do want to connect it to the last verse we read last week in chapter two. I told you before that the verse and chapter divisions that are in our Bibles are not original to the original writing of the Bible. In fact, they were added during the time of the Protestant Reformation because during the time of the Protestant Reformation, a phenomenon happened and that is folks sitting in the church pews actually had a Bible in their lap. That never happened before. And so in order for the preacher to tell the church this is where I'm going to be preaching today, you had to have some way of finding it. And so they added the chapter and verse divisions. And so sometimes those chapter verse divisions can be somewhat arbitrary or it can actually kind of block the meaning or the connection that happens between the chapters. I told you a couple weeks ago that the book of Exodus actually begins with a conjunction. The conjunction connects Exodus to all that happened in the book of Genesis. Well, chapter three also begins with a conjunction, and it's connecting us to what happened at the end of chapter 2. So look at the last verse of chapter 2. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And so this is important. God sees, and God knows. Is that encouraging to you today? God sees you, and God knows. He sees what you're enduring. He sees what you're going through, and God knows. And so you go to chapter 3, and it begins with a conjunction. Now, now what? 
Now Moses is going to be called by God. God saw and God knew the oppression of his people under Pharaoh and in Egypt. Now, here's the connection Moses is called. So look with me at chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. This is the inspired word of the Lord. Now, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. He said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Now, if you went to Sunday school as a child, no doubt you're familiar with this story of the burning bush. I can still see in my mind's eye the flannel graph that my Sunday school teacher put there with Moses and the bush that was on fire. This is a very popular and a very familiar story about God calling Moses to send him to rescue the people of Israel. But I believe, even though this is a very familiar episode in the history of redemption, that God would teach us something today, teach us something about himself, but also teach us something about ourselves. Again, this is 40 years removed from where we were just last week, from the very last passage. He's now 80 years old. For the past 40 years, he's been working for his father-in-law. He's been a shepherd keeping his father-in-law's sheep. It's interesting, I find it interesting at least, that the text says that Moses was still keeping his father-in-law's sheep. Now, I would have thought after 40 years, that father-in-law would have at least given him a stake in the company, right? Maybe some stock benefits to own part of the shares of, of this company. But no, he's still just an employee. He's still just punching a clock. He's working for his father-in-law, keeping his sheep. And God determined at this time, at this place, to call this person to be his instrument through whom he would deliver his people from the oppression of Egypt and the oppression of Pharaoh. And so from this passage, I want us to consider three main truths that emerge from the text as we think about the call of Moses by God himself. The first thing I want us to consider is this, the description of the Lord. We see in this passage, there is a description of the Lord, the one who is 
calling Moses. Now, this is a passage about Moses' call to be the deliverer. But here's an interesting thing. Most of the passage we just read is not about Moses. The first verse kind of catches us up to speed on what Moses is doing. Then the next eight verses are all about God, who he is, his character, what he's coming to do, why he's coming to do it. Then you have him issuing the call to Moses. You have verse 11 where Moses responds. There's finally a verse about Moses. And then you get to verse 12, and it's about God again. So I think this should tell us something. If, if you believe God may want to use you in his kingdom for his purposes, listen, it's not so much that you need to get a fresh vision of the job. It's not so much that you need to get a fresh vision of the task at hand. It's not even so much that you need to get a fresh vision of yourself. Who am I? How am I wired? What's my personality profile? How am I gifted? What are my experiences? That's all has a place. But the main thing you need to get a fresh vision of, if you're going to be used by God, is you need to get a fresh vision of God himself. You need to come to know who this God is that calls us to be used. Now, it says here that uh, God disclosed himself in an interesting way, and I want us to consider how his self-disclosure is. First of all, think about his personal revelation. His personal revelation. How does God reveal himself? Well, God is identified in verse 2 as, quote, the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord. This could also be translated the messenger of the Lord. Now, let me tell you what God is not intending to communicate here. The voice that spoke to Moses that's identified here as, quote, the angel of the Lord, this is not a created angel. This is not a spiritual being that has been created by God. You see, this phrase, the angel of the Lord, often in the Old Testament, is a depiction of what's known as a a theophany, or better, a Christophany. Here's what a Christophany is. A Christophany in the Old Testament is a pre-incarnate, visible manifestation of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. A Christophany, according to theologians, is a pre-incarnate, so the incarnation is when Jesus took on carne, flesh, pre-incarnate, visible manifestation of Jesus. So we see this all through the Old Testament where the angel of the Lord, quote, is actually God. How do we know that? Because the voice that comes from this bush does not speak for God. He speaks as God. He's not telling him about what God's going to do. He is God saying, this is what I'm going to do. So you need to understand this. This is a Christophany. I told you three weeks ago when we started this study, We're going to see Jesus on every page of the book of Exodus, even though it was written 1,500 years before he took on human flesh. And this is one of the places we see it. Well, how do we know this is actually Jesus? How do we know this is a Christophany, a pre-incarnate vision and appearance of Jesus Christ? The reason we know that is because the New Testament tells us this is the case. Look at a couple of passages. Paul identifies the manifest presence of God throughout the Exodus experience as being none other than Jesus Christ. Look at 1 Corinthians 10. Paul writing says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. That's the Exodus experience of the cloud. And all passed through the sea. That's the parted Red Sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, the manna from heaven. And all drank the same spiritual drink. 
for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. So who is this person? That's the cloud, that's the presence, that's the food, that's the drink. Here's what Paul says, and the rock was Christ. (laughs) Jesus was the manifest presence of God throughout the entire Exodus experience, a Christophany. Jude says something very similar in Jude chapter one, verse five. He says, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So who's the deliverer of the book of Exodus? Jesus. Who's the destroyer of the book of Exodus? Jesus. Jesus is in Exodus chapter three. Do you see it? Here he is. It's a Christophany. But what is the significance of a burning bush? Why a bush that is burning, that is on fire, but yet it's not consumed? Well, this symbolizes a couple things, I believe. One, it symbolizes the self-existent nature of God. We'll see next week that God tells Moses his name, I am that I am. What does that name mean? He is the self-existent one. In other words, I don't need a bush to fuel my fire. I am self-existent. In fact, this is miraculous. A bush on fire, not consuming the wood from that bush is a miracle. Two weeks ago when we had Snowpocalypse 2024 here in Chattanooga, and it was freezing, the snow melted, turned to ice. Well, I have a wood-burning fireplace in our home and I've got a big stack of wood that I made last fall. I cut the trees down myself, I cut them into pieces, I split them myself, and I had this nice big stack of wood. When it was 15 degrees outside, I said, you know, this would be a good time for a fire. So I had a fire going for a couple days. Guess what that big stack of wood looks like now? Absolutely nothing. I burned it all. It's a miracle that you can have a massive fire raging and the wood doesn't get consumed. This is a foreshadowing for Moses about what this whole Exodus experience is going to be like. Moses, I am the miracle-working God. And God will perform many signs, many wonders, many miracles through the process of delivering his people through his instrument, Moses. But additionally, I think this fire signifies something else. In fact, look at verse 5. Jesus spoke to Moses from the fire in verse 5 and says this, Do not come near. Take your sandals off. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Now, why would that place be considered holy ground? And what does fire have to do with it? Again, I've told you, Exodus is a continuation of Genesis. Genesis promises are fulfilled in Exodus. And so there's a connection here. There's a connection to the covenant that God made with Moses' fathers. There's a connection to Abraham. If you'll remember the episode when God first made his covenant with Abraham, he told Abraham, I need you to go get five different animals. I need you to get a heifer, female goat, a bull, a pigeon, and a turtle dove. Okay, got him. After he gets him, he says, okay, I want you to slaughter them in. I want you to take the three uh, four-legged animals, and I want you to cut them in half and lay the carcasses on the ground over against each other. Okay, done. And then here comes the covenant, the ratifying of the covenant. Abraham is in a deep sleep, and it says that God walked between those carcasses. What's the symbolism? What's the significance of that? The significance of that covenant is this. This covenant will stand until these carcass halves come together into a living creature. When's that going to happen? Never. In other words, this, this covenant stands forever. 
But notice from Genesis chapter 15 how God manifested himself. I believe it's Jesus again manifesting himself in this covenant, in the ratifying of the covenant. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. God, for whatever reason, shows up and manifests in a visible way in fire. And he does it again here in chapter 3 with the burning bush in fire, marking his presence. That's what made it holy ground. In fact, we'll fast forward to Exodus chapter 19. We'll see God manifest, Jesus manifest through fire again. Look at uh, Exodus 19, 18. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. This was whenever God delivered the law, the Ten Commandments, to Moses. And he manifest his presence on Mount Sinai. The whole mountain's on fire. And so here in chapter 3, Moses, don't come any closer. In fact, take off your shoes because you're on holy ground. Why? Because his manifest presence was here. It's a personal revelation of God, of Jesus. Notice next not only the personal revelation, but number two, his promise remembered. His promise remembered so that Moses could unmistakably know exactly who this is that's talking to him from the burning bush. He spoke in covenantal language. Notice again what he said in verse 6. Jesus speaking says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So there's going to be no confusion about who this is. It's not one of these other gods they say exist in in Egypt. It's not one of these animistic gods that people go to to see the witch doctor. This is one God and one true God. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Interestingly, 1,500 years later, after this time, when I believe it's this Jesus speaking, Jesus actually quotes this verse. Isn't that something? Jesus quotes this very verse. He's in a conversation with the Sadducees. And if you know anything about the Sadducees of first century Judea, you know their theological bent was this. They didn't believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in a resurrection from the dead. They believed that when you died, that's it, you're gone, finito. That's why they were so Sadducees. You, you have to use that joke anytime you talk about Sadducees. I'm sorry. It's a requirement. I had to sign a document in seminary that I would do that. No, I didn't. So Jesus quotes himself from Exodus chapter 3. Look where he quotes it in Matthew 22, verse 31 through 33. And as for the resurrection of the dead, again, he's talking to Sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection from the dead. Have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. What is Jesus appealing to? He's appealing to, listen, the tense of the verb. He's saying, when I said this, you don't know it was me saying, when I said this to Moses, I didn't use the past tense. I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Jacob. I was the God of Isaac. He used the present tense. I am, which means they are presently alive. Even though they are dead and buried in a grave, spiritually, they are alive with God. And that's why the crowd was astonished. This is brilliant. This is a connection. But there's something else I believe God is communicating, specifically to Moses. 
he's reminding Moses of the promise he made to his forefathers. In other words, I'm a God who keeps my promises. Even though it's been over 400 years, even though everyone in Egypt has forgotten about Joseph and his ancestors, guess what? I am a promise-keeping God, and I'm here right now to keep my promise to my people. So it's a promise remembered. Thirdly, we're going to see that he describes his powerful rescue. God has revealed what he is like. He's holy. God has revealed who he is. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now God is going to reveal why he is manifesting himself to Moses at this time in this place. Look again at verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry and because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them. In just those few sentences, God delineates to Moses the why. We've already seen the who. We've already seen the what. Here's the why. Why am I coming now? I've seen, I've heard, I know. I've seen their suffering. I've heard their cries. I know the oppression. What is he saying here? I love my people. I love them and I will deliver them. Now you could read this and you could think, well, of course he sees. He's God. Of course he knows. Of course he hears. He's omniscient. That's part of what goes along with being omniscient, of being all-knowing. He sees, he hears, he knows everything. But friends, whenever he says here, I see, I hear, and I know, it's not just an aspect of his nature as being an omniscient God. He sees, he hears, he knows, and he cares. And some of you this morning, this may be the one point in the sermon you, God brought you here to listen to. God cares. God knows. God sees. And friend, God loves you. He will rescue you. He will deliver you. Cry out to him. We see this heart of God most clearly manifest, not just here in Exodus chapter 3, but again, fast forward 1,500 years from now, when this same God would take on human flesh. Notice what the Bible says about Jesus in Matthew 9, verse 36. When he, that's Jesus, that's God, that's the voice of the burning bush. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. You need to know something. The God of Matthew chapter 9 is the same God of Exodus chapter 3. He sees, he hears, and he knows, and he will intervene to rescue. Well, the most of this passage, again, is about God. <laughs> It's a description of God. We need to have a fresh vision of God. But I want us to move forward a little bit. I could spend a lot more time talking about who God is. But let's move forward and just consider the disposition of the servant. The disposition of the servant. Notice how Moses responded to God's call upon his life. Verse 11. Who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? I want you to remember, Moses has been disconnected from Egypt and all the majesty and the monarchy for 40 years. For 40 years, he's been punching the clock for his father-in-law. 
For 40 years, he's been grazing sheep on the backside of Mount Sinai. And the job God is calling Moses to is fairly straightforward. I want you, 80-year-old Moses, shepherd, to go to the most powerful man in the world. And I want you to go to that man and tell him, hey, you know this slave labor force that you've been using to build the monuments of Egyptian power over these last couple hundred years? Uh, I've come to bring those, those people out. You're going to lose this free labor force that you've been abusing for so long. No big deal, right? <laughs> what, what could possibly go wrong? And Moses asks the obvious question when he gets the job. Who am I? Who am I? I'm just a lowly 80-year-old shepherd. Now, being a shepherd, that's good, honest work. In fact, God has used shepherding to shape and mold some of his greatest warriors. Abraham was a shepherd. David was a shepherd. Jesus even referred to himself as the good shepherd. So being a shepherd in and of itself is not bad, but friend, it's not glamorous work. Not on any stretch of the imagination. In fact, it's interesting, the Egyptian view of those people who were shepherds, Egyptians and Pharaoh himself saw the job of shepherd as being the lowest rung on the occupational ladder. Shepherd was very despised. In fact, there's an interesting exchange that happens with Joseph 400 years earlier. Joseph is in Egypt as Pharaoh's right-hand man. He's going to bring his family, his brothers, and their children into Egypt to live during the famine. And what Joseph does is he coaches his brothers, hey, by the way, when you come in, you're probably going to be questioned by Pharaoh. He's going to want to make sure that you immigrants who are coming into our country are not coming to rock the boat any, that you're not coming to upset the uh, social structure that happened. So here's what you need to say. Look, in fact, what the Bible says in Genesis 46. Joseph says to his brothers, when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers. In order that, here's why you tell them that, guys, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. In other words, Egyptians thought shepherds were scum, the lowest of the occupational ladder. It's an abomination for Egyptians to be shepherds. So here comes Moses, and what is he? A shepherd. And Moses says, who am I? Who am I that I should be somebody to go out. Surely there's somebody who's better equipped for the job. I tell you, it seems to me that over these last 40 years, and God has a way of doing that over time, that over these last 40 years, Moses has grown up quite a bit. He's a whole lot more humble than what he used to be. If you'll remember, last week we saw, 40 years earlier, he thought he could deliver his people by the force of his own personality. I mean, I was educated in Egypt. I've got the best of education. I had access to all the worldly treasures. I'm going to go and rescue my people by my own power, by my own means, by the force of my own personality. And what happened? He failed miserably, and he was exiled to live as a refugee for the rest of his life. So doing it in his power didn't work. And now God comes to this shepherd, despised occupation. And interestingly, God does not recite back to Moses his personal resume. He doesn't recite back to Moses, Moses, you forgot about your credentials. 
Moses, don't forget who you are. You are smart. You are good looking. You have the greatest education man can provide. Moses, don't forget. You're familiar with the palace. You lived there for 40 years. Don't forget, Moses. You understand how the whole system in, in Egypt works. You're incredibly close to it all. You have a heart to defend people. You're courageous to stand up for abuse. Moses, don't forget. You had wonderful faith-filled parents. You have a very clever sister. Moses, don't forget. You've paid your dues on the 40 years on the backside of Mount Sinai. I mean, you know this Sinai area like a New York City cab driver. If we're gonna deliver your people out, you know every crook and cranny and every trail that needs to be taken. You have all the credentials in Moses, even if you are a bit haunted by your past. Moses, you the man, you the man, let's go do it. God doesn't say any of that. In fact, it's pretty much he says, you know, you're exactly right. <laughs> Who are you? God doesn't give him any kind of a pep talk. He doesn't recite his resume. Why? Because when the going gets tough, listen, none of that's going to matter. When the going gets tough, friend, as you're serving God, your experience, your education, your 401k package, none of that's going to matter. What matters as we're serving God? That leads to the third thing I want us to see. Number three, the dependence on his presence. There must be Moses, a dependence on his presence. In verse 12, God answers the who am I question. Who am I? And God says, I will be with you. What a profound statement. I will be with you. Moses, I'll tell you who you are. You're the guy who's going to have God. I'll tell you who you are, Moses. You're the guy who will have my presence upon him. Moses, it doesn't matter who you are. That question is completely irrelevant. What matters is the fact that I will be with you. The promise to Moses is the promise of his presence. This past week in my time of preparation and study, I just did kind of a survey of the Bible looking for other reluctant servants. And how did God get them over the threshold to obedience. Very same way. Look at some of these examples. Moses' successor was Joshua, very uh, book six of our Bible. What did God say to Joshua in Joshua chapter one? He says, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. Why? For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Go to the next book of the Bible, the book of Judges. You have Gideon. Gideon is also a reluctant servant. He says, who am I? I only have 300 soldiers and you want me to go against this massive army of Midianites? Notice what God says. First, he records his reluctance. And he, Gideon, said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you. <laughs> That's fantastic. Or consider David, the lowly shepherd from his father's household. He was last to be picked on the playground by his brothers when they played pick kickball. He was. He wasn't even a thought whenever Samuel came to find a king in that household. And what did he write most famously in Psalm 23? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. And then there's the reluctant prophet Jeremiah, who's commissioned to go 
preach to a rebellious, stiff-necked, obstinate people, and he is absolutely scared to death. What does God say to, to reluctant Jeremiah? Then I said, ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how, how to speak, for I'm only a youth. But the Lord said to me, do not say I'm only a youth, for to all whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Is this not amazing? You move into the New Testament. Jesus has been crucified. He's now resurrected. Judas is gone. He's committed suicide. But Jesus speaks to these 11 fearful, uncertain disciples. He's already told them, I'm going to be leaving. What does he say to them? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Friends, this is why Paul could say in Romans 8, 31, if God is for us, what? Who can be against us? In fact, at the end of Paul's life, in his last will and testament that he wrote to his son in the faith, Timothy, he writes to him and he says, you know, I've been abandoned by everybody. Notice what he says in 2 Timothy 4. At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. Truth be told, none of us really have anything that commend us to service in God's kingdom. None of us do. The only reason we will ever make any impact for eternity is if we have the presence of God, if God is with us. Now look again at verse 12 of our focal passage, and I want you to see the guarantee that God gives Moses. Here's my guarantee that I will be with you. What's the guarantee? Look at verse 12 again. But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Now, if you think about it, this is kind of interesting what God says here. He says, here's the guarantee that you're going to have my presence. In the future, you're going to serve me here on this mountain. Now, let me put it in these terms. Let's suppose you're playing on a basketball team or a football team, and you're in the locker room before the big game, and your coach says, I guarantee you something today, folks. We're going to win this game. We're going to win this game. And you raise your hand kind of sheepishly, uh, Coach, how do you know we're going to win? Well, here's my guarantee we're going to win. Just look at the scoreboard when the game's over. What? <laughs> yeah, the scoreboard's going to show. We win. Now, if this was a great coach, he's still a finite human being who cannot see the future. But friend, if the God of the universe says, at the end of the game, look at the scoreboard, we win, you can trust that. You can walk in that truth. But I think perhaps the the most important thing perhaps the Lord said to Moses, even in this whole passage, is in verse 5. Look at it again. Then he said, do not come near. Moses is curious. There's a bush burning. It's not being consumed. He walks closer. What is it? I need to check this thing out. And the first thing God says to him, don't come near. You need to keep your distance. You need to stay back. Because had he approached that bush too close, he would have been consumed by the fire. Why? Because unholiness cannot approach holiness. 
because impurity cannot be in the space of that which is completely and totally pure. Stay back. Stay back for your own safety. No human, no one can come to God. If only there was a way. (laughs) If only there was a way that we could approach the throne of grace and find help in our time of need. If only there was some way that the chasm between the holiness of God and the own holiness of man could be spanned. Well, there is a way. You see, because 1,500 years later, this voice from the burning bush would take on human flesh. 1,500 years later, this Jesus would be tempted in every way to unholiness, to impurity as we are, and we fail, yet he never failed. And 1,500 years later, this Jesus would take upon his own body the punishment for our sins so that all who trust in him, who believe in his name, who surrender to his rule and lordship in their lives can have eternal life. To Moses, God said, don't come near. But is that what he says to we who know Jesus? Notice what the book of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 10. It says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, don't come near? No. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And so to ask the question, who am I? Who am I that God would use me for anything? That's entirely the wrong question. Here's the question. Look at this next slide. The question to ask is this. Whose am I? Whose am I? Because it is our identification with Christ alone that qualifies us to be of any service to him. Last Sunday after I preached here, I got in the car with a couple of my family members, a couple of my kids, and grandkids, and we drove down five and a half hours to South Georgia, right on the Florida line, a little town called Quitman, Georgia, where my wife had already been there for 24 hours so that on Monday we could participate in the funeral service of a man who has influenced me and my family in innumerable ways. His name was Mr. Curtis Pickles, or Honorable Curtis Pickles. He was the mayor of Quitman, a member of our church, and an incredible encouragement to me. In 1993, my dad bought a 150-acre hog farm in South Georgia near Quitman, and he moved me, my 23-year-old wife, and my six-week-old daughter to Quitman to manage that hog farm. We immediately, within two weeks, joined First Baptist Church, and This couple, Curtis and Ola Pickles, who had no children, no grandchildren, took us in as their own and have loved us for 30 years as their children. As I stood in that church Monday and preached his funeral, stood behind that pulpit for the first time in 25 years, all these memories rushed back about what God did in that place through those people almost three decades ago. Again, I'd been farming for close to three years, but the Lord was doing a work in my heart. I believe he was calling me to ministry. 
I shared that with my wife, Amy. Thank God's calling me to ministry. I called my brother who had just moved to Chattanooga. I said, I think the Lord's calling me to vocational ministry, but I'm just an uneducated pig farmer. And here's what Tony said to me. I believe it was a, almost a prophetic word. He said, Troy, I believe that God will take you and place you in a full-time ministry position to feed your family while you earn your education and experience. I said, well, that'd be great if that happened. Unbeknownst to me, the leadership of the church where I was serving as a volunteer was having conversations that I didn't know about, and the conversations were about me. And so the chairman of the personnel committee sees me one day and says, hey, can, can I take you to lunch? I said, sure. And he says, Troy, I don't know if you've ever thought about leaving pig farming, but our church would love to call you as the minister of education and youth. Would you have any interest in that? <laughs> Talk about a burning bush experience. I said, let me pray about it. Yeah. So we transitioned from farming to ministry. First day on the job as the associate pastor of First Baptist Quitman for education and students, I walked into what would be my office, and I sat down behind that big desk in a leather chair, and I lost it. I just put my head in my hands. I just wept. I said, God, I am completely unqualified for this. I have no business being here. I can make no impact for eternity unless you're with me. Now, I don't think I've ever heard the audible voice of God, but I certainly know the Spirit said to my heart, I'm with you. Sixteen and a half years ago, I walked into this building for the first time and I walked into my office that used to be over here. I went behind that desk and I stood in that, sat in that leather chair and the same phenomenon. I lost it. I wept. I said, God, I am not qualified. I don't have the education. I don't have the experience. I don't have the know-how to lead this great church as their pastor. And the Spirit said again, I'm with you. Friend, I believe God's called every Christian to ministry, to service in his kingdom, and your resume ain't good enough. Your know-how, your collective experience is not enough to do eternal things. But here's what the God of the universe would say to you. I will be with you. I will be with you. He chooses shepherds. He chooses pig farmers <laughs> to accomplish his eternal purposes for his glory. And that leads to my last thought. God doesn't need us to accomplish his purposes, but for reasons known only to himself, he chooses to involve us in his kingdom work. I think the reason he does that is because God is all about his glory. That's why he does it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.